second reading comes from Titus, chapter 2, starting at verse 1. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love and endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to the husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. Good morning. My name's Rick. I'd like to add my welcome to Jeff's. It's great to see you here. And for anyone who is watching at home, hello and welcome as well. If you are um, visiting us, whether physically in the building or from home, it'd be great if you could let us know that you've, that you've visited. And you can do that via the contact button on the website. But please, if you do have your Bibles there with you, keep them open at Titus chapter 2. And we're going to spend a bit more time looking at that together now. But please, let's pray first. Please join me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us and you've spoken these words in particular to us. We ask that as we read them together again now, you will fill us with a confidence in the goodness of what you have to say to us, even when those things that you have to say might, might jar or conflict with things that the world around us has to say. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My kids love telling me that I'm getting old. And besides the increasing amount of grey hair that they see, one of the pieces of evidence they point to about that is that I like listening to AM radio. And as I listen to AM radio, one of the segments that I, that I hear from time to time is called Self-Improvement Wednesday. People heard of Self-Improvement Wednesday? Not many people? Okay, I guess I'm the only old person in the room then. Great. Uh, it, it's, it's a segment on Wednesdays, as you can imagine, uh, that encourages people to improve themselves by making little changes or, or adding things to their life, like you know, take up gardening, learn an instrument, learn a new language, maybe learn to meditate or grow in emotional intelligence, things like that. And I guess those kinds of things are appealing to people of a certain age. But whatever our age... Most people do want to know, don't they, how to improve themselves, how to be a better person, or at least perhaps how to have a better life. And the number of self-help books that you see out there, or podcasts, or seminars on these kinds of topics of improving yourself, does show just how, how popular and significant this idea is. But one of the things that you notice about the difference between these self-improvement ideas and the ethics of the Bible, what the Bible says about how to be a better person, is that biblical ethics is almost always about relationships, how we relate to other people and who I am in relation 
to other people. And today's passage is no exception. The instructions that we get here about living the Christian life are given to us in categories of who we are in community. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men, slaves even. Because who we are in relationship matters. And this way of seeing ourselves in categories of relationships does kind of clash, doesn't it, with the ideas that we've absorbed from our culture around us, where we say, you know, don't put me in a box, don't put me into a category and label me, I'll decide who I am, I'm an individual and I'll decide how I will be in relation to other people, what kind of person I'm going to be. But at one level we know that who we are in relationship matters, don't we, instinctively? I mean, the way that I speak to my friend is going to be different to how I speak to my grandma. And that's true for for most people, right? We kind of instinctively know that, that who we are in relationship matters. So there is that kind of clash in ideas between between our culture and, and what this passage says, but also in the content of what this passage says, there is going to be a clash, isn't there, between what this says and what our culture around us says. But it's my hope that as we look at this again together now, that we will discover the goodness of what this teaches us about living the Christian life and that it will help us to live a life that is good for our relationships, that is pleasing to God and that is winsome and compelling to the people around us, to the non-Christians around us. But before we get into what this passage actually says, we need to make sure that we don't miss the gospel foundation of these instructions, that this is not just a list of rules that we need to follow. No, this is the life that fits with the gospel of Jesus. If you were here last week, you might remember that from last week we heard about the false teachers whose corrupted gospel led to a corrupted life. But now in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says to Titus, you must be different to that. He says, but you, Titus, you teach what fits with sound doctrine. You teach what is appropriate with sound doctrine, the good life that fits with the true gospel of Jesus. And next week we're going to see this even more. But today this passage shows us what this looks like for different groups of people. So what we're going to do is we're just going to go through each of these categories and have a look at what it says. And the first instruction is to older men. And the first three things that it says in verse 2 there are to be temperate, worthy of respect, and self-controlled. And these three kind of go together really, I think, don't they? And the middle one, I think, kind of holds them together. That older men, and as we'll see in a moment, older women also, are to be worthy of respect. I think it's fair to say that our Western culture has moved a fair bit away from that kind of respect your elders mentality that that used to be a thing. But a lot of cultures do still have it. I've tried in the past to spend some time learning Korean. And one of the difficulties of learning that language is that you have to use different forms of language depending on whether the person you're speaking to is older than you or younger than you or the same age as you and that makes it quite complicated but you can see that recognizing the significance of age is kind of built into the language 
And that's true for a lot of other cultures that do hold elders in quite high regard, much more so than our Western culture does these days. And that idea of holding elders in high regard is is much closer to the Bible's expectation than our current culture of idolising youth. We use old these days as an insult to our shame, I think. You know, that, that expression, OK Boomer, is disrespecting to older people and it's, it's not OK for how we should treat older people. We should respect those who are older. But this instruction to older men is to behave in a way that is worthy of that respect. And the other two words, temperate and self-controlled, is part of that. Temperate means literally sober, and that kind of fits with the instruction to older women not to be addicted to too much wine. But it can also mean sober-minded, that is, steady and reliable in character, not the kind of person who just flies off the handle. And self-controlled, again, is part of that. And this comes up in almost all the instructions. Self-controlled is about acting thoughtfully and wisely rather than just reacting impulsively in the moment. Older men are to be that stable and reliable character who thinks before they act or who thinks before they speak. And the next three instructions for older men also go together. Sound in faith, in love and in endurance. This is kind of that picture of the rock-solid character of the Christian life. The one whose faith in God is solid, who has learned the goodness of trusting God. The one whose love for others is is an example for other people to, to follow. It's persistent. The one whose endurance, whose perseverance is, is, is again, a model for others. And they've got the scars to show it. They have, bat- they have weathered the storms of the Christian life and they will continue to. They're a model of perseverance. The older Christian men should be solid in these foundations of the Christian life. And you see how it has that parallel with faith, love and hope that we talk about sometimes. And in contrast, I guess, to what this should not look like is it should not be the kind of older man who loses his zeal for Jesus as he gets older and starts to care more about the gardening or his long holidays or pining about what life was like when he was younger instead of living radically for Jesus as he continues to get older. Instead, to be the kind of man that, old, that younger men can look to and say, That's the guy I want to be like when I'm older. I want to be like him. This is the kind of older men that we want to have our churches filled with. I mean, how good would that be? And how blessed are we with our older men who are like this? So if you're an older man or on your way to becoming an older man, then can I encourage you, aspire to be this kind of older man. Next is older women from verse 3. And the first thing it says there is reverent in the way they live. And this is kind of similar to that idea of being worthy of respect. It's having that character that is fitting for older women. And, and, and the connotation here is almost a, a priestly, dignified um, vibe. And the example of what this looks like is in the next two instructions, the negative example, I guess, in the next two instructions. The first one is not slanderers. Gossip and slander, I think, is like the evil twin 
of prayerful concern. Older women can be such a wonderful example of caring deeply about what's going on in the lives of others around them and to want to pray for people and to offer practical support. But like so many things, I suppose, sin can distort things that are good and turn it into something that is bad. And so there is a a risk for prayerful concern to be distorted into gossip and slander, where it becomes about being in the know and about the control and influence that you can have from being at the centre of information, not slanderers. Next is not addicted to much wine. If an older woman is, is more freed up from some of the responsibilities that she might have had in the past, she, that must not lead to drinking too much. That doesn't fit with the reverent, dignified character that an older woman should have. And not only is it unfitting, it also undermines the next very important instruction, and that is teaching what is good and training younger women. And this is really significant. And again, I think this is where valuing the advice of elders is something that we don't do very well as a culture generally, both men and women, both outside and even within the church from t- sometimes. We have this unhelpful culture, I think, of only really wanting to connect and even to learn from people who are very much like us, very similar in age and stage, maybe plus or minus a few years. We value connections and advice from our peers, but not so much from our elders. And that's a real contrast to how the Bible says our relationships should operate. And can I say I've seen some wonderful examples of this done well in my short time here at Richmond Anglican, so that's a real encouragement. Older women have a wonderful opportunity to teach younger women. But it requires two things. And notice that it's the same two things that was required of church leaders back in chapter 1 right character and right teaching. So the instruction to older women is be the kind of person who really is qualified to train younger women. And so notice here that that qualification is not just about experience, the age of experience. We, we kind of have this unhelpful myth, I think, of experience where I can only learn from someone who's had the exact same life experience that I've had. You know, married with a certain number of kids or not married or no kids or, or whatever it is. The experience is what we, we value. But the criteria for being able to train younger women here is not life experience, of course that comes from being older, but godly character and right teaching. And so he says to older women, that's who you should be. Be the kind of person who is so faithful and solid in your behaviour and in your theology, so that you are the right kind of person that younger women can and should look to you and be trained by you. And younger women, this tells you the kind of older women that you should look to for advice and training. Value the the opinion, value the mentoring of these kind of older women. These older women who are well-rooted in the gospel are a blessing among us. 
Well, this brings us to the instruction to younger women, and this is what the older women are to train the younger women in. And the first instruction there is to love their husbands and children. So the context there is family and marriage. And you see that this assumes that it's not going to be easy. Apparently, some husbands aren't that easy to love. Of course, my wife doesn't know anything about that. Some husbands, apparently. But what this is saying is that it will require effort, that they will need help. But it's worth it. It's important. The blessing that spills out into family and beyond, into community, is worth committing significant energy and time to, especially in those early years of marriage and having kids. And self-control, you see, comes up there again. And pure, this is talking, I think, about self-control with regard to sexual temptation. Next it says, busy at home. Now this is not just talking about being chained to the kitchen sink or being against any kind of work outside the home, but it's about so valuing the goodness of work in the home that we're willing to commit significant energy towards it, that the difficulty of home life is worth it, particularly, again, compared to our culture's expectation that the only thing of any value for any self-respecting woman is a career outside the home. And that if you want to have a family life on top of that, well, good luck to you if you can manage it. And so we've spent a generation at least devaluing the mother's role of working in the home. And so we wonder why mothers find home life so difficult and unfulfilling. And that places a terrible extra burden on young mums in particular. It's hard enough already. And then we make it harder by saying, well, it's pretty much worthless anyway. And I have to say, my wife, Helena, has been made to feel worthless by even Christian women who look down on her for deciding not to go straight back to work, but to focus significant energy into raising kids. And I think another thing with busy implies or speaks to the fact that this is a task that is never done. It's not finished the work at home. It's never finished, right? There's always something to do. And so we're simply just saying, be a faithful steward of the time that you have. I think that's what busy means in this context. Older women have a great opportunity to encourage younger women about the goodness of this work in the home. The next instruction there is the simple word kind. I mean, it is such a simple word, isn't it? But it paints a wonderful picture of that kind-hearted woman who is a force for good in her relationships, at home and in the community, who is known for her kindness and whose kindness makes such a positive difference to all kinds of people. It's such a wonderful thing to aspire to. It's such a wonderful thing to want to have in our communities. But it's something that our culture doesn't really value. Our culture would much rather see our young women kicking down doors in the corporate world than being a kind-hearted influence for good in the home and in the community around her. So what is it that we value for our communities, for our young women? I mean, what do I value for my daughters? Do we value these things enough to be encouraging this and to be encouraging women who are a good example in this area? Now, the next and final instruction to younger women is about being subject to their husbands, and that's part of this good picture. 
And I don't have to tell you how much this really does clash with our cultural expectations for men and women. But when Christian marriage is done well, it really is such a beautiful advertisement for the Christian life. People might not like the idea, and and they won't, but they'll like what they see. It's hard for non-Christians to speak against loving Christian marriages and all the goodness that comes out of that. And I'll come back to this idea a bit later on. The next instruction is to young men. And you see, really, there's one key instruction that's given to the young men, and that is self-control. There's a few more that comes from Titus as an example to young men, but self-control is really the key one. And again, a definition of that is about being controlled by thoughtfulness and wisdom rather than just reacting impulsively. You might have heard that the male brain doesn't finish fully developing until about the mid-twenties, which, of course, every woman in her mid-twenties knows perfectly well. It's later than that, isn't it? And, I mean, our insurance companies know this as well, don't they? Because they have a higher premium for men under 25. This is about the, the ability for young men to assess risk and to go, actually, no, that's not a good idea. And I guess it's that stereotype of younger men acting impulsively. And so the instruction here is to teach young men to not be like that, to be controlled by wisdom and thoughtfulness, to not be that stereotype of the rash, thoughtless, impulsive young man who acts first and thinks later, or who speaks first and thinks later, that kind of ready, fire, aim approach to life. And, and so the instruction, I guess, is to, to younger men to think about some of the situations where you can get caught up in the heat of the moment and, and say something or and do something that you wouldn't do if you actually thought some more about it. And if there's you know, a whole bunch of categories where that could be applicable with regard to anger, with regard to lust, aggressiveness, impatience, ambition that treads other people down, even laziness can be an issue of self-control. This is not saying that young men are incapable of this kind of self-control. In fact, just the opposite. It's saying that young men need to be deliberate about pausing in the heat of the moment. And so I guess the test for this is, is to think about those moments where self-control is being tested and to stop and think, is this consistent with the new life that God has given me to live in Jesus? How will I feel about this tomorrow as I look back? Well, I think this has been a wise decision. Well, I think this has been a wise thing to say. We want our young men to be older men in the making. And self-control, wisdom, thoughtfulness that stands out against the stereotype of the rash and impulsive young man is, is part of that. Okay, now the final instruction is to slaves. And I think this instruction to slaves is one that we kind of struggle to know what to do with sometimes because we go, well, we're not slaves. And I don't think we can draw a direct connection between slavery and employees. One of the distinctive features of slavery is that slaves are working under obligation. They have very little freedom to choose what they do and who they work for. And that does have some parallels, actually, with certain kinds of work still these days. 
Some people I've known in, in the armed forces. I mean, I don't know what it's like to work at the RAF, but I know, I've known people who work in the armed forces who have said to me that they have very little freedom about where they work and when they work and what work they do. There are other people who have very little freedom about what kind of work they do just because of social circumstances where they just have to take the work that they can get. And that actually does have some parallels with the picture of slavery that this is talking to. And the remarkable thing about this instruction to slaves is that even with very little freedom of choice in work, you can still live a godly Christian life in that context, that you can be trustworthy, that you can be not rude or argumentative, not stealing, whether it's money or possessions or even time, that even if, even if there is very little that you can get out of being that kind of person in that circumstance, and even if other people look down on you for not taking every advantage that you can in that situation, your good works will speak volumes, it says, and it will commend the message of Jesus that you stand for. And that's really true in all of these instructions. People might not necessarily agree or like what the Bible says about how we should live as, as men and women, older or younger. And we know that people will speak vocally against it at times. But as we live it well, we will show how good it is. People might be repelled by the idea, say for example, of how to live as men and women, but they'll be attracted when they see how good it is when it's done well. They'll be attracted to Jesus by our example of Christian marriages done well, of younger people who respect their elders and of older people who are worthy of that respect. It will make the message of Jesus shine. It'll make it attractive, as it says there in verse 10, because it will show just how good it is in practice when it's lived well. Being saved by Jesus calls us to live a radically different kind of life, a radically good life, a life that cares about the relationships that we are in and that lives well in those relationships. So I guess my question to end with is, do you believe that? Do you believe that the life that Jesus gives us to live is the best kind of life? And do you believe it enough to want to live it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you ask us to trust you. And so we ask now that you give us a spirit of faith to trust that the words that you have to say to us of living in light of the gospel in the relationships that we are in, that this is the good life, that this is the, the good life that you have given us to live. Father, we ask that you will enable us to live this kind of life well, that you will enable us to encourage each other as we seek to live this life, and that that will indeed be a blessing to us, to our families, to our community, and that it will make the gospel attractive to the people around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.